Well, friends, today we pick up again in the Gospel of Luke, and today we are in Luke 10, a story that I am sure many of you are familiar with called the Parable of the Good Samaritan. But first, I want to put us in the Gospel, where we are in the narrative. So, Jesus did a lot of teaching along the way. So, this teaching is as he's walking, journeying from one place to another— And at this point, we find Jesus making his very last journey of his earthly life. For this last journey is going to end in Jerusalem, which we all know brings his deadly fate. So has anyone here ever journeyed with someone in their final days? Maybe it's not a physical journey like Jesus is taking, but a journey through their declining health. And what do you do in those final days? You pay special attention to their words, right? Because if they're of sound mind, you know that they're going to be trying to pass along to you all their years of wisdom. They're going to be passing along to you the most important teachings that they want for your life. And that, my friends, is what we have here in the Gospel of Luke. These are Jesus' last words on his last journey before his death. So with that in mind, as we hear our scripture text today, let's pay special attention because these are weighty words, weighty words from our Lord. So hear now the word of the Lord from Luke 10, 25 to 37. Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. So show of hands, who has ever heard this parable before? Anyone? Yes. (laughs) Good. Yeah, this is probably one of Jesus' most famous teachings in our culture and even around the world Even those who have never cracked open the pages of the Bible are familiar with this phrase, Good Samaritan. Several countries have laws called Good Samaritan laws protecting those who try to help an injured person. 
Good Samaritan people are those who pull over to the side of the road. Good Samaritan ministries help out those in need. We have positive connotations of this phrase, Good Samaritan. So when we hear this parable, many of us tend to think we happen to know just what it means, that we should help those in distress. And yes, Jesus does mean that. We should continue doing that. Those are good things. But there's a lot more going on in this parable than just that. At the heart of this parable, I think Jesus is trying to teach us something that's going to turn our worlds completely upside down. He's trying to teach us to get over an us versus them mentality. To stop caricaturing and demonizing people who are different from us. To start truly loving others we might consider our enemies. This parable back then, and when we understand it today, isn't just a, a nice teaching. It's radical in all senses of the term. Because God's kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. So in order to understand the radical nature of this parable, we need to back up and put ourselves in the shoes of these characters to understand who they are. So first we have this lawyer, the one who asks Jesus the question in the first place. Now, many of you might be thinking, a lawyer, what's, what's he doing talking to Jesus? It's interesting to note that in the New Testament, the words lawyer and scribe are pretty interchangeable. So scribes were ones who recorded and taught and ruled on points of the law. They were experts on the law, which for Israel was the scriptures. So experts in the law were scribes. They were religious leaders, often interchangeable. So this is the man. He's probably a scribe. And what he proves to Jesus is that he does know the scriptures really, really well, as his occupation leads him to. When Jesus asks him about the heart of the law, he summarizes it to a T. It turns out that he doesn't need a lesson on what the scripture says. What he needs is a lesson on what it means. What it means and how to live it out. Because it's not just knowing that is important to God, but understanding rightly and living it correctly. So let's look at how the scribe has interpreted this law. So his head knowledge is actually very impressive because, you see, in the Old Testament, there were 613 laws. And the scribe, he has pulled out two that he thinks are the most important. The first is the Shema from Deuteronomy 6.5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And then he pulls out a second one from Leviticus. Leviticus 19.18 says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against any of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now note carefully what this Leviticus text says. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against any of your people. You see, to the scribe and some of the other religious leaders, love of neighbor was to them only love of your people, your own kin, your own fellow Israelites. The scribe here is quoting this in an attempt to justify himself. 
and his own actions. Our text doesn't say exactly why he's trying to justify himself, but based on Jesus' next teaching, I'm pretty sure that the scribe is trying to justify his own us versus them mentality. His way of separating us, Israelites, versus them, those non-Israelites. The scribe has likely heard about Jesus going around gallivanting with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes and non-Israelites. And the scribe and other leaders didn't like it. So the scribe here is arguing with Jesus. He's trying to say, based on his scriptures, the only people we have to love are our people, not those outsiders. Jesus, what are you doing? Love your people. But as usual, Jesus pushes him to expand his understanding. Jesus pushes him to see that you, scribe, have missed the point. Your people are not just your fellow Israelites. Your people are all of your common humanity. These are all your brothers and sisters. All are your neighbors. And this Jesus teaches through a parable, which, if you're not familiar with that word, it means a story that didn't really happen, probably, but it very likely could have. The, the context there would fit well to make it have actually happened. So that's where we get the parable of the Good Samaritan. It is through this story that Jesus is trying to expand the scribe's thinking. So what we might miss about the parable of the Good Samaritan today is that stories like this were actually really common in Jesus' day. So it was very common to tell a parable in which the first two people do the wrong thing, and then the third person comes along and does the right thing. So when Jesus is telling this parable, the scribe and everyone else know what's coming. The first two walk in, do something right. The third one does the right the do something wrong, the third one does the right thing. It's just like our, our jokes that go, two guys walked into a bar, the third one, you know, it's with the third one that lies the punch. So the third guy, this is where the punchline is supposed to be. But it's not that he does the right thing. That wouldn't throw them off. It's who he is. This third guy, he's not a scribe, but he's a Samaritan. Because the other thing we should know about that culture is that there was a trio that always went together. Priest, Levite, scribe. You always talked about those three. Priest, Levite, scribe. They always go together. So when Jesus is telling this parable, a priest, a Levite, a Samaritan, you can just hear him gasping. Jesus, you did not just put a Samaritan in my place. That is where I am supposed to be. A Samaritan? This is really offensive. Because you see, the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. I'm talking like utterly, utterly despised. It's, it's not just like a little rivalry, Purdue fans versus IU fans. You feel your blood going just a little bit. Well, that just expound times like a million. It's this utter hatred. So one commentator says that there really isn't anything in our culture that can 
try to compare to the feud that exists between Samaritans and Jews. He says, perhaps the closest we have is the conflict between Shiite and Sunni Muslims. Two groups that have this really strong connection, that have the same roots, who, for whatever reason, believe the other branch has gone utterly astray because of a few little differences. And then they hate each other for it. So as the saying goes, we often butt heads with those we're closest to, right? Just ask your sibling or your spouse or someone later. Well, this is the saying that's true with Samaritans and Jews. The history of how this came to be is really complicated. Um, You can ask me about it later if you're interested. But what we do know is that they share the same roots, but there are differences. The Samaritans worship on Mount Gerizim, and the Jews worship in Jerusalem. The Samaritans have some views on scripture that are different from what the Samaritans, the Jews and Samaritans, different views on scripture and messianic expectations. So these are the little differences that, well, they would be big differences to them, perhaps. It creates this animosity between them. Do you you feel the animosity, these little differences, creating this hatred? So what makes matters worse is that Samaria lies right in the middle of, of Israelite land. So Galilee to the north, of course, is where Jesus is born, where he starts his ministry. And then there's Judea to the south. That's where Jerusalem's located, the religious capital. And so Jesus, in this narrative, is traveling from the north in Galilee down to Jerusalem to the, in the south. This is where all northern Jews would have to go through where? What is right there in the middle? Yeah. So anytime they go to a religious festival, which is several times a year, they're faced with this problem. What do I do? My enemies are right there. What do they do? They avoid them. They add on a ton of miles, a ton of time, and they travel all the way around Samaria along the Jordan River. They will do anything they can to avoid these hated Samaritans. But it's interesting to note, the Samaritans are literally their neighbors. Geographically, they are right in the middle of Israel. They are their literal neighbors. But Jesus, he refuses to do this roundabout way. He refuses to avoid Right before this, in Luke 9, we read that when Jesus starts his journey to Jerusalem, he sends ahead some disciples and says, Tell them I'm going through Samaria. Prepare a place for me. Now, we read that the Samaritan village won't have him there because he's headed toward Jerusalem. They disagree with worship in Jerusalem, so they say, Sorry, not going to have you here. Don't like where you're going to worship. But Jesus doesn't force himself on them, but still, it's important, he hadn't gone the roundabout way on his own. He had refused to avoid them. But there are other stories where he is accepted. In John 4, there's a story of Jesus traveling through Samaria. He stops at a well. Do you know this story? There's a woman at a well. Yes, and she talks to Jesus, and after this conversation, she goes back to her town. The town invites Jesus to come, and then we read this. And many more believed because of his word. We know that this is truly the Savior of the world. 
But none of this ever would have happened if Jesus had chosen to avoid, just as he had probably been taught to do. Go the roundabout way. It is safer, Jesus. But he won't. He goes right through. Even when he's rejected once or twice, he refuses to avoid. I believe Jesus' actions and the parable of the Good Samaritan that highlight them give us three concrete steps for putting love of neighbor into action. I've listed them in your bulletin. If you want to pull your bulletin out, you'll see them there. And the first one is this. I've said it several times. Love and action doesn't avoid. It doesn't avoid even when you might be rejected one or two times in your attempts. So I urge you this week to prayerfully consider, really think about it. Are there any individuals or people groups that you might go out of your way to avoid? You might avoid them based on differences in faith or politics or upbringing or lifestyle. Maybe just it was a sour encounter you had in the past. And because you don't want any awkwardness or tension, you go the roundabout way. You drive through a different part of town. You go somewhere else to eat. You limit what news channels you watch or who you follow on Facebook. You do anything you can to avoid. But friends, Jesus refuses to avoid. And he calls us to do the same. Now Jesus' first disciples mimicked this action of Jesus. And we read in Acts 8 that as a result, many more Samaritans joined the early church. You see, the gospel spreads when we get over our fears and we stop avoiding And start befriending. So this week, try to befriend a person or group of people you usually stay away from. And as you do so, be alert because God just might want to teach you something about his character through them. Just as Jesus used a Samaritan to teach the scribe about God's mercy. And that brings us to our second point about neighborly love. And that is love and action doesn't caricature and it doesn't demonize. So there's no question that the Jews had demonized the Samaritans. My guess is that most of them had never even met a Samaritan because remember, they do everything they can to avoid them. So rather, they had likely just grown up for centuries and centuries knowing that all Samaritans are evil. Simple as that. Now, Jesus knows how dangerous this is. Sadly, we know how dangerous it is too, don't we? So look at the history that we have just within our own time. The Nazi regime demonized Jews and gypsies and lots of others they massacred. The KKK demonized African-Americans. The list goes on and on and on. And you might think, well, those are extreme cases. I never would have done that or thought that if I was in that place or that time. It's easy to say retrospectively. But friends, this kind of thinking is alive and well in our place and our time 
too, even though it can be harder to see when you're in the midst of it. Did you know that we learned from some of you that in West Lafayette, where we now live, which is this beautifully diverse place we really enjoy, but not that long ago there were statutes prohibiting anyone living there who was Jewish or African American. That happened in some of your lifetimes, here in our own town. Things like that still happen today. Our media is especially good at caricaturing groups, aren't they? They make us afraid of whoever the enemy is. They fill us with hatred for them, even when we've never even met those people. It could be people of a different faith or ethnicity or political party. Do you remember November? That was pretty atrocious. It could deal with a whole range of issues. The list goes on. But whatever it is, there's a tendency for us to get so caught up in the issue, so caught up in our caricatures, in our quarrels, usually on social media, in our media electronic road rage. We get so caught up in it that we completely miss the person in need right in front of us. We are so stuck looking down that we miss the person in need right in front of us. I want you to check out this painting that was done by a well-known Christian artist in West Michigan that we know. His name is Joel Schoon Tannis. Now, Joel regularly paints biblical stories and motifs, and he goes around speaking about them. He's very powerful, very gifted, um, and he made this piece that he entitled The Good Syrian. And it actually just recently hit the news. I'll tell you why. But he writes this about the painting. He said, I hope this painting encourages people to ask the question, who is my neighbor? Based on a composition by Vincent van Gogh, my painting re-examines the parable of the Good Samaritan and recontextualizes its message into today's tribal world. And then in this case, it is the Good Syrian who helps the distressed man with the Confederate flag tattoo on his arm. As the indifferent bystander walks off into the distance, absorbed in their smartphone. I hope this painting will provide some insight into the question, who is my neighbor in this complex global world we live in? Here's the painting a little bit bigger again. So here's an interesting thing that happened to Joel's painting lately, which is why it hit the news. It was flagged by Homeland Security as a national threat. Yep, it was taken off the market. No one was allowed to buy it. It was frozen. Joel was contacted that this piece is no longer allowed. And he says, apparently creating art about helping people threatens the safety of our country. I have a feeling that this is kind of some of the feelings that the scribe must have been feeling back then, saying, oh no, that is a threat. What you're telling me is a threat. We can't have that. Now don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying we don't need policies to ensure the safety of our country. I wholeheartedly believe we do. We definitely do. But automatically assuming that anything attached to the label Syrian or Middle Eastern or Muslim, is bad, is a threat, this is exactly what the Jews did to the Samaritans. 
It's not fair for us to put a whole people group in one category based on the actions of a few. Just as it wouldn't be fair for all Middle Easterners to label all American Christians as white supremacists based on the actions of a few, right? So I could tell you so many more stories about examples we've had like this, stories of the numerous Muslim families that live in our neighborhood who have gone out of their way to be generous and kind to us, more so sadly than we've gone out of our way to be generous to them. But sadly, I can also tell you that we have had Christian family members and friends tell us, you better be careful, they might be terrorists. And every time I hear that, I want to cry and say, you have never met my neighbors. They are kind. They are generous. We have a lot to learn from them. And I think that's what's going on in Jesus' heart, too. He's telling the scribe, have you ever met your neighbors? Have you ever met them? I think Jesus wants to invite us to get to know our neighbors and to see that in them, God might show us something of his character, just as the Samaritan shows the scribe the mercy of God. What's interesting is that in the Gospel of Luke, the word mercy that Jesus used to describe the Samaritan is only ever used to describe God. So it is this Samaritan, this person that was written off as evil, that is the example of God's character. There are a few other stories that I have. I can't go into detail, but please let's talk about them later. Stories that Brandon and I have from our two weeks we spent on the border of the U.S. and Mexico, meeting people on both sides, studying immigration issues. Stories of our friends of other ethnicities who regularly face racial profiling. Stories of our friend's five-year-old girl, Zoe, who came home from school this fall singing, You're going back to Mexico, you're going back to Mexico. And her mom pulled her aside, said, Zoe, what are you singing? She said, what's a song that all the white kids sing to the brown kids at school? And Zoe's mom said, do you even know where Mexico is? No, Mommy. Do you know what it means to be sent back? No, Mommy. Do you know that these brown kids are your best friends? They're the ones who all came to your birthday party last week? Yes, Mommy. And as her mom explained to her what this song meant, she wept. These were her neighbors. These are her best friends. And without even knowing it, she had participated in this song that was really sad, that was profiling all of her brown friends, saying that it would be a joy if they were sent away, even though many of them wouldn't be, that they were citizens. These are just some of the complicated things that happen in our culture today. Friends, our friend commented to her husband after Zoe sang this song, this is how the Nazi regime gained power through characters and songs taught to children. This is how Jewish kids grew up hating people like the Samaritans. And Jesus says, stop it. Stop it. It is time to get to know your neighbor. 
Now, this isn't meant to be a sermon about political issues like immigration or Christian-Muslim relations or race relations. But I believe the parable of the Good Samaritan really applies to all of them. And I think it also applies to the way we Christians treat one another when we think differently about these issues. It applies to us who think different politically, to any of us who think differently or act differently than someone else that we label as the other. Jesus calls us, as he called the scribe, to stop it. Stop demonizing. Start getting to know them. Start getting to know your brother or sister in humanity and start loving them. So that's our second point. And that brings us to our third action. How do we love? Well, the Samaritan shows us how, and that is he doesn't hold back. That is, he gives self-sacrificially a model of what Jesus will do for us on the cross. You see, the Samaritan was putting himself at great risk. We might miss this because we don't understand the dangers back then, but he's putting himself at a lot of risk for stopping on this road. So this is the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. You can see that the, the landscape is really steep on both sides, so if someone comes at you, there's nowhere to run. You're stuck there. So a lot of robbers would hang out up high, and then when someone comes by, they just... Come down, attack them, nowhere to run, your prey. So when this Samaritan stops, he's putting himself at risk because there's a good chance these robbers aren't that far away. They could just be hiding up top as they were for this other guy. And then lugging along a half-dead man is going to make you pretty slow on this road. It's not going to be easy to defend yourself if someone does attack you. So that's one risk he's taking. The second is him just being associated with this man. So this half-dead man had been traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, which could mean very well that he was a Jew, leaving his worship in Jerusalem to go to Jericho. So if he is indeed a Jew, for him to associate with the Samaritan, for the Samaritan to associate with him is really bad because people are going to guess one of two things. One, the Samaritan beat him up, because that's what Samaritans did to Jews and Jews to Samaritans. The second is that, oh no, he's a friend with a Jew, and that's going to get him beat up. But he's willing to do it. He's willing to make this risk. And then there's the financial risk of taking him to the innkeeper. He pays the innkeeper up front, but then he says, I will repay whatever more the innkeeper spends. Now, this is just asking for the innkeeper to up the price, right? When he gets back, I spent all this money, and this is what you owe me. That was pretty common to do back then. But he takes the financial risk. He's willing to take it on himself. And this is what it looks like to love in action by not holding back. Not just to say you love them, not just help when it's convenient, but to radically give even when it hurts, even when there's risk involved, even when that person is our greatest enemy. This is what it looks like to love like Jesus because, friends, whatever risks we take, whatever we give of ourselves, 
there is going to be no comparison with what Jesus has given for us. For you and I, who were once God's enemies, for you and for me, who sometimes still treat God as our enemy, Jesus has given everything. And that is why we are called to also give to others. So I'll close with this. In January of 2014, Pastor Drew preached a sermon in which he highly referenced this text. Does anyone remember that? It was three years ago. Maybe not. <laughs> We've been trying to listen to some of the old sermons. He ended his sermon with a challenge to you all to consider how you love the other within the church. He encouraged you all to move beyond an us-versus-them mentality when it came to older members versus newer members, to consider who you spend most of your time with, who you might befriend. And I encourage you, keep doing that. There's a lot of fruit that we have seen from you living that out. But today I want to encourage us to go even further. I want us to consider who we associate with not just within the church, but without. Are all your acquaintances just like you? Are they the same faith, same ethnicity, same income bracket, same political party, same sports fans? On Sundays when you're watching football, do you ever sit with the enemy? I encourage you, branch out. Try to get to know your neighbor, even if they are the other, whether that's your actual physical neighbor, someone at the office, at church, whether it's a group of people in town you try to avoid, ask God how he might help you move beyond an us versus them mentality. Ask God to point it out to you where you live into this. And then when you meet that neighbor, ask God to show you what of his character he might want to teach you through them. And then ask God how he might want you to love them, not just in words, but in action, as Christ has done for us. Let us pray. God, we thank you that you first loved us when we didn't know you, when we were even your enemies you came to us and gave us everything. There is nothing that we could do that would say thank you enough. Therefore, we commit our lives to you. We commit to trying to see all our brothers and sisters as your beloved children. Help us to treat them with mercy as the Samaritan did. All this we pray in your ever-gracious name. Amen.